Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Gwen Eiffel, moderator and managing editor of Washington Week on PBS and co-anchor and co-managing editor for the PBS NewsHour. She also is an author. She talks about her career, about race, and about politics. I read someplace that you always wanted to be a journalist. Is, is that right, even as a, a small child uh, growing up? It's true. I think it may have been a brief flirtation with being a ballerina, but that was never going to work <laughs> out. So uh, I like to write. I like to read. And and as a child, I always wanted to write, tell stories. So the the problem I had then and now is I couldn't finish the stories without a deadline. So because I grew up in a house where we had newspapers, where we watched the news all the time, I thought maybe that's the way I get to write. I write in a deadline business where I get to ask all the rude questions I want to ask, and I get to write it down. I get to tell the stories, and then someone says, get it to me by 6 o'clock, and I could actually get it done. So the journalism found me. I didn't find it. Did you have to struggle early on to find find work after Simmons? Yeah, I think in the it was in the mid seventies, late seventies when I graduated from college, and at that time the the journalism market was terrible. The marketplace was terrible, but I had done a series of internships when I was in college, and the last one was a summer job at the Boston Herald American, and through a series of unusual circumstances, I ended up getting hired there. It was not I didn't get hired in the best way, but I got hired in the in the way that allowed me to take the next steps of my career. How how important were those early days of journalism and deadline journalism as you talked about in print journalism where you had to cover everything? Everything. Uh, you know, talk about that as it uh, pertains to your career today. Well, sure. I mean, when I started at the Herald, I was the first writing job I had was covering food and cooking. <laughs> I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know anything about food, but I knew I could learn and I learned a vital lesson, which is you can teach yourself anything in journalism and you can find a way to write about anything in journalism and you end up smarter and I now know how to cook. So that was that was useful. <laughs> that but was a twofer. It was, it was yeah. a twofer. But I also found out that by covering my first school board meeting that politics was, was not just about two people running against each other for an office. Politics was also about whether kids got to go to school or not. Uh, it was an end of the busing crisis in Boston. And politics was also about whether you, your children could learn safely. There were a lot of things at stake in what we considered to be politics. So I didn't realize I was covering politics. I just thought I was covering the school board. When I went to planning committee meetings at a county in Washington, I didn't know I was covering politics. But in the end, it all was. So it was a very... 
it was very useful to have be thrown into the deep end of a lot of different kinds of pools. Was it, was there a big difference in in reporting in Boston than reporting in Baltimore, where you went? Oh yeah, when I was working in Boston, I, I alluded to the fact that I got the job in an odd way. I got the job at the Boston Herald because someone had left a racial slur for me at my workspace, I, which I won't report repeat on the air. But it was mean and it was ugly, and and the bosses there felt horrible about it because they knew who had done it. And I, my response, which tells you a little bit about me, was I thought, I wonder who this is for. This is terrible. And then I realized, oh, oh, this is for me. So I showed it to my boss. He was horrified. His boss was horrified. Long story short, they said, if you ever need a job, come back to the Herald. And I thought, I won't come back and work for these racists. But then when I couldn't get a job, a year later when I got out of college, I knocked on the door and they said, come on in and gave me a gopher job to rip wire copy and do the most elemental thing in a newsroom, but it got but me you in learned. a newsroom. That's exactly. Right. And, you, and you learned and then went on to Baltimore. What did you cover there? I covered City Hall and I covered the State House in Baltimore. I was only there three years, but you know, there's always a point in your career which is, are kind of like your salad days where you learn the most <laughs> in a short period of time. And that for me was at the Baltimore Evening Sun. I also learned how to write fast. It was an afternoon newspaper and if something broke at 10 in the morning, you had to dictate it into a payphone and off the top of your head and it had Give to be Give me rewrite, print. right? <laughs> Literally, honey, get me rewrite. It was right. a throwback. You couldn't do that now except you do it in a different way. You blog very quickly. Sure. But as a result, I can still write fast, a lesson I learned at my second job. And then the Washington Post after that, you must have thought you had died and gone to heaven. I did for a minute. (laughs) And then (laughs) I realized, well, I realized it was a newsroom, like all newsrooms, with all of its challenges and its ups and its downs. But it gave me an opportunity to, as I said, covering planning board meetings, covering a a changing county, which just demographically, I got the idea from my book in some ways took root then, watching. Things change and new people come into power and politics and power change hands. And so I got to do that. I, I got to cover that. And that was where I covered my first presidential campaign in 1988, working for the Post when I made the transition to the national staff. So I was learning and learning and learning everywhere I went along. And you got to cover the White House for the New York Times. I did. I, I was at the Post for seven years when I was uh, wooed away by the New York Times. And, you know, that uh, yeah, covering the White House sounds a lot more glamorous uh, I, I, than it I, is. I, I was going to say, a lot <laughs> of my reporter friends say that y- that exact same thing. It's true. That, that, that it's sort of care and feeding of the, uh, of the press corps, and you don't have that street sense of getting out and, and doing a lot of independent work. Well, I always tell people that covering the White House is a good job to have had. In order to understand how Washington works and what the relations are between Congress, which I had also covered, and the White House and how things work and who talks to whom, you had to get a sense of the White House. You had to have a sense of what the moving parts were inside that building. It doesn't mean you're breaking great stories or interviewing the president every day, but it did put you in an interesting place. And I I think it's a it's a tough, frustrating job many days to have, but it's a great job to have had. Do do your editors uh, think that something monumental is going to come out of there every day? No. 
They do not. They, they, they may have once back in a different era, but they don't think that anymore. The White House, in, in some important respects, and I don't want to belittle it, but in some important respects, it is a, it's a caretaker's job because someone's got to keep an eye on the most powerful man in the world every single day. Someone's got to know what he's doing, what he's thinking, what's motivating him. And so these are important jobs. The smartest reporters use the White House beat as a way to broaden, as a way to talk to people outside of that building, to get information, to fill in the gap and the holes in our understanding about how government sausage gets made. And if you do it right, it can be a very good beat. We're talking to Gwen Eiffel. She's the moderator, managing editor of Washington Week on PBS and also the senior correspondent on PBS NewsHour. We're talking to her as she's here in Athens to receive the Carvanando Award from the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism. Let, let's talk a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about your relationship with Tim Russert because um, that was a major change in, in your career. As, it was. I, as I understand it, you were becoming fairly regular on Meet the Press as as one of the the, the commentators, and uh, he, he was the one, at least reportedly, was instrumental in getting you to go oh, to broadcast. Absolutely, you know I. My first television, national television experience was actually on Washington Week as a panelist when I was uh, working for the New York Times. And so I got a lot of sense working for Paul Duke about how to be on television. But being on Washington Week got me invited on other shows, including Face the Nation and Meet the Press and, and This Week. And it was Tim who had me on Meet the Press repeatedly. And the thing I loved about Tim is he had this boundless curiosity. He loved when you told him something he didn't know, loved it. And so after a while, he came to me with one of those offers, you can't refuse, why don't you come and work for me full time? And my first response was, well, no, I've got this great gig. I'm, I'm, I'm with I'm, the New York Times. I'm, I'm with the New the York White Times. <laughs> I'm on television part-time. People return my phone calls. I'm fine. Why should I come work in television? It's a risk. Um, but he persuaded me. Actually, he dared me to take the risk. I was going to say, what was his most persuasive argument? He, he said, what, are you a coward? You know? yeah, okay. He, he <laughs> Challenge. Da- he dared me to do it right. He also was someone who I liked and respected and knew was smart and knew would protect me because the truth about what scared me about television wasn't anything other than that I would fail. And what he said was, I will give you a producer who will teach you television. You've already got the journalism down. I will teach you television. And when he got interested in me, then all the other networks did, and they started sniffing around. At that one point, I realized this 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 is karma. I got to try this. And so I carefully left my bridges unburned at the New York Times and went to work for Tim. But the thing about Tim, which was the best in my career, is that he not only got me into NBC News, but then five years later when the PBS offer came and I was still under contract to NBC, he got me out of NBC News because he looked at me and he said, you've got to take this job. This is a great gig. You'll get your own show. And he ran go-between with the lawyers in New York to allow me to leave NBC to take this new opportunity. So Tim always watched out for me. It's it's vital to have a mentor that completely that, is that, that, that keeps his promises for you and, and and cared about you, not just the product right. that you were producing. I still miss him every day. How important was the writing in your early transition to television? That was one of the hardest things. There were two hard things about the transition to television. One is learning how to write for television, and the other was learning how to speak for television. 
I, as you can tell, I speak very quickly normally, and I had to slow down, and I had to find a way to tell the story instead of just read the story. But then I had to find a way to match the, the storytelling with pictures. My first assignment at NBC News, I remember running off to cover a story and coming back and saying this great thing happened, and someone said, where's the tape? And I went, oh, <laughs> I forgot to bring a cameraman with me because I forgot. I was so used to just operating with a notebook and a pencil. Sure. So I had to learn how to think picture first, write to picture first, and then te- find, develop a storytelling voice so that I could then communicate the story. Uh, it was multi-layered. It was much harder than you have any reason to know until you go into television. The difference between NBC, a commercial network, and PBS, was mm. it was it stark? Was it a marked oh, yeah. difference even very early on? You know, the biggest difference uh, in working for public broadcasting is that you think a lot more about money than you think you would. In commercial broadcasting, where people think you're thinking about money all the time, you don't. There's a Chinese wall. Because they have it or they did. Have it, <laughs> or they have it. Or somehow you just, it's just not your concern. You just do the story. But in public broadcasting, there's always the pressure about how do you tell the story and do you have the resources to tell the story. And so that was the biggest change. The other biggest change in working for the News Hour is that a short story at NBC News, or I should say a long story at NBC News, was a minute and a half. A short story at PBS is five minutes. And so I just had the luxury of time to tell the story, something which we didn't have any time to tell the stories uh, working for the nightly news. In your 13 years at PBS. Wow. uh, It has been that long, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. How, How have you grown as a journalist? What do you do so much better now than than you did? Well, I've been fortunate that I learned a whole new set of skills when I came to PBS, including how to anchor a broadcast and read a teleprompter and do all those things which involve sitting at a desk and holding a broadcast together. I didn't have any of that uh, kind of exposure when I worked at NBC and certainly not when I was in print. So I feel like I'm a better person. Moderating is not a small thing. It turns out you have to keep a lot of balls in the air, do it well, and still tell the story. And that's the biggest skill I've learned. Get everybody their their perspective and everybody their time mm-hmm. and, and try to do it evenly in your head as you're exactly. progressing the story along. Kind of like right? you're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Keep track of it all. We'll be back after this short message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other Bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. 
Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You talked in your talk tonight about the importance of diversity in, in newsrooms, and mm-hmm. I know that that's, that's something really important to you. And, it is. And, and you talked about um, having uh, that perspective, whether it's diversity in, in race or religion or economic differences, but have that mix in a, in a newsroom. Talk about that a bit. There is no way that we can say we are journalists who are telling the stories of Americans, of everyday people, or people in far-flung lands, if we only bring a very narrow worldview to our work. If you've only grown up in one city, in one house, in one place your whole life, why would you be expected to know more? So the solution to that is not that everyone has to have every kind of background, but that you pepper your newsroom with different kinds of ideas. And you moved around. And and, you moved around. And and you had Mm -hmm. different living environments you talked about tonight. and, And you bring that perspective, that sort of worldview that's different than other people. It's true. But I also want to see conservatives and liberals in newsrooms. I also want to see old and young people in newsrooms. I want to see people with different skills and different different rootedness in what a, the American experience is. Otherwise, we can't tell the story as accurately and with the same clear eye. Some of my journalist colleagues uh, say that we really lack uh, different religious perspectives I in newsrooms and, and how important that is. And that's something I really hadn't thought that much about. But. I think what happens is we don't talk about it as much as in newsrooms, but and we are therefore considered to be a pretty irreligious or a religious profession. Right. But I find that most of my closest friends in the business are all people very deeply rooted spiritually. It's just not something that we use to shut off conversation with other people. So, and and you know, religion, politics, all types. And it of can subjects. be religion by culture too, not Absolutely. necessarily religion by by worship. Absolutely, and the. the depends on how you process information, and I think that that's all very important. Do, do you think news sources or people that you interview get a sense that you might understand what they say? I don't know. I, did, I guess it depends on what your style is. I, I know there are some journalists who, like, almost shift the way they talk and relate and say, you know, come on, but, girl, you can tell but, me this. But that can come off. But uh, I think it can come really off as fake. phony. That yeah. can be very risky. And I think you just have to, at the very at the very least, master empathy and master open listening so that you're not being judgmental. And then people will tell you things. Well, the re- one of the reasons I'm asking you that is is I, I watched your interview with uh, Justice Soto- Sotomayor, mm-hmm. or Sonia Sotomayor, who is the first Latina on the court, right. uh, one of the youngest members mm-hmm. of, of the court ever. She's just released her memoirs, uh, My Beloved Life, and and you did an interview a couple, I think, last week, yeah. or, or it Just aired last week. week. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there seemed to be a connection. I've watched a lot of justices and, and judges be interviewed in, in my career, but there seemed to be a connection between the two of you. And I was wondering if it was that connection of background or connection of of you understood where she was coming from, or, or, or I, I, you know, I, I couldn't put a finger on it, but it, it, it was different. It's interesting. I, I didn't watch the finished product because I was there, but I, but I do think there's some of that, but I also think part of it is also the way I relate to people when I've read their books. 
um, something about being inside the head of someone who's written a book about themselves, you feel like you know a lot of things. And that the, the premise for your conversation is much deeper than it is when you're just talking about the news of the day. So if, if you went back and saw the way I interviewed um, other authors who have written books which are deeply personal, I also think you find that same kind of connection. I, okay. I interviewed Condoleezza Rice about her book, and I probably you probably saw the same thing, but she and I have very little in, in common, actually, personally. So I, I, I think it had more to do with the topic than with the uh, any kind of personal connection. She seemed very comfortable with you. and, and It's also and, who she is. She's a very She's, she's very, very open, very different kind of justice. Absolutely. But, but, uh, but I'm glad it seemed that way. That's what I like. That's what I'm striving for. Well, it it it, it worked. Thank so, you. you you said a, a few things tonight that that I'd also like for you to talk about. You you said that uh, we're so much we're spending so much less time engaged with one another. That we're engaged in topics that are really steeped, whether it's anything from pop culture to politics. Uh, it's a but, great concern but, of mine. But we're not engaged. It, it, it's a great concern of mine that we don't listen to one another, that we form our opinions before we want to hear information, and then we stop listening. And therefore, that we, we go into our little silos where we can turn on the TV in the morning, find someone who agrees with us at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, read a magazine that agrees with us, and at the end of the day, never engage in any kind of discussion or debate. And I, I don't think that's healthy. I think we need to listen. We need to assume. Someone asked me earlier today, how is it possible that there are 47 percent of, of Americans who voted for Mitt Romney? How is that possible? And I said, you need to get out because it's true. There are a lot of people who felt strongly and not just because they hate Barack Obama, but because they disagree with Barack Obama. And you have to allow for the possibility that people have honorable disagreements. People ask me all the time, oh, well, is it because they, they're, he's black and they're racist? I said, no, it's possible to disagree with the president and have it not be about race, even if that is our great national obsession. Well, you you wrote a book about race, mm-hmm. though, and, and after the 2008 election. And, right. and basically, uh, it was about the emergence of uh, African-American black politicians, right. uh, you know, after the civil rights movement, sort right. of culminating in mm-hmm. the election of a president uh, of the United States. How have things changed? You covered the 2012 election. Mm-hmm. How did they change between 2008 and 2012? In 2008, there was a popular notion that we had transcended race by electing an African-American president, which was never going to be true. It was never true. And the president never thought that. And every single one of the people I interviewed for this book didn't think this. And then they had all achieved and broken through on different levels, whether as governors or senators or city council members. None of them believed it. But we are so anxious to get past our old discussions about race in this country that we want to leap to the solution. What we've discovered four years later is that doesn't work that way, um, that we have to find other ways of dealing with our differences and our, and our, and our disagreements and, and with our discomfort with talking about race in a non-judgmental, non-hostile uh, way. And now that we've had a black president and the big historic moment has passed, we have to deal with the realities. So, but, but you, you watch Washington politics in depth uh, every day. Don't they treat, don't some of President Obama's political opponents treat him differently because of his race? I don't know. I I do know they treat him differently. I know they disagree. And race may be a factor for some. 
I don't think, I, maybe I'm just a ridiculous optimist. I don't think race is a factor for most. I think policy is a factor we have for this, most. We have this rise of, of ardent partisanship. That's true. At the same time, we have sort of a uh, race question that nobody talks about mm-hmm. m- much. And, and maybe they get shifted. Uh, maybe. I mean, I think, I think it's the not being talked about part, which I think is the problem. I, I, one of my dear friends is Michelle Norris at, at NPR. Sure. And she has a project she calls that arose out of a book she wrote called The Race Card Project, where she asked people to send six words about race into her website. And people say the most astonishing things. And what she does is she follows up and says, what's the story behind that? And they will tell her these most amazing stories. But all she had to do was scratch the surface. And people are happy happy to talk about race. What they're not happy to talk about is racial conflict and racism. So we have to find a way to talk about race in a way that's not negative and accusatory and judgmental or layer race as an excuse over every disagreement. And that's when we get to a healthier place. So what's a journalist's role in, in all of that? Because uh, I, re- I read a quote that you had. You said shouting's a good way to foment conflict, but not necessarily the best way to inform. And if that was an accurate quote, true. Uh, then what's a journalist's role in, in, in bringing this, these issues to the fore for civil conversation and debate and, and, and argument? A journalist's role is what it always was, which is creating more light than heat. Heat is very, it gets eyeballs, it gets, it's kind of sexy. We love to have a, watch a good fight. It's hard to look away. It's like a slow motion train wreck. But it does, you don't walk away thinking, I just learned something. I know more. I think a journalist's role, a true journalist, not just someone who's there to create, to stir the pot, is to try to find out more. So have people walk away thinking, I didn't know that. I know more now. And everybody doesn't rise to that level, I'm afraid. It's not commercially viable, or we don't have the patience as a culture for it, or both? I get up every day and go to work for the premise that it is viable, that there, are, there is at least enough of a slice of America out there that wants to get more, that wants to learn more, who are deeply curious, who uh, are turned off by shouting and yelling and interruption. And I know there's a group of people out there who will always want to get their news in the most exciting, you know, food against the wall kind of way, and they should have a place to go. I'm just not going to be the one to help them. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, You you also talked about uh, people getting a sense of a story instead of just knowledge of a story, and that's a distinction that's (laughs) fairly sophisticated. Can can you break that down a little bit? Well, a knowledge is a set of facts, and people come away thinking, well, I now know what I think, but a sense of the story is something broader and deeper and more contextual, and it's something that it's also harder for reporters to do. We're very good at saying, you know, a plane crashed in this field right behind me. We're harder, it's harder for us to say a plane veered off course because of bad decisions that were made in the maintenance, and, you know, that takes a while to tell. That takes some investigation to tell. That takes some understanding and knowledge to tell. That is telling the full story, not just the facts of it. So, and I, and I, and I everybody, you know, live at five. If it bleeds, it leads. Everybody can, doesn't have the luxury of time or resources to tell the deeper story, but somebody ought to. But do you do that by? An interview process, do you do that by bringing in experts? Because all I see now are outside of PBS are, are pundits and talking heads and people with spin. You yeah, know, it, there's, you know, it depends on the topic. I mean, yeah, the pundits and the spin, they're always going to they're going to always have a thriving business. 
But I think the responsibility is to dig a little deeper and ask an extra question and get the people who are actually experts instead of people who just woke up and said, this is what I think today. And everybody doesn't have to do it that way. That's my, my point is that as long as there are places to go, um, broadcast television or even on cable, any place you can go where there's going to be deeper information, it's fine if the rest of it exists. It doesn't bother me in the least. What I want to know is that somewhere in the universe, somebody who wants to know it differently can find it. Do you, do you, do you care about that 90% perhaps, and I'm picking a figure, that, mm. that's out there going, I don't really care about that? I don't think it's 90%. I think a lot of people care, and a lot of people, and a lot more people would care if they how, knew where to go. How, how do you get that sense? I just get that sense from it's completely purely anecdotal, but it's also in polling. I mean, you talk to people about issues, they have opinions, they have thoughts, and they're pretty smart. And the fact that we dismiss Americans for not thinking very deeply is, is our fault. I people come up to me all the time, and I know it's anecdotal and therefore can't be applied, but who want to know more and ask really smart questions and are disappointed that they can't more easily get those answers. Are you disappointed in journalism that maybe we're not giving them those answers? Sometimes I am, but most of the time I'm not, because every now and then I will get the opportunity to judge a journalism contest and see the amazing work that's being done out there that we don't talk about. because in, in small places in sometimes. In small places sometimes, because we love the Scripps uh, contest is a perfect example exactly. of that. We spend a lot of time talking about all the things we don't do and how terrible we are and the loudest voices get heard, but a lot of good work is getting done. We've been talking with Gwen Eiffel of PBS's Washington Week and PBS's NewsHour about her career and the state of journalism today. We want to thank you for listening to Spectrum. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Coming up next on Spectrum is a conversation with Sean Peoples. He's a documentary filmmaker who weaves personal stories with world problems. For more information about Spectrum, go to wwb.org.